I told you a few weeks ago that uh, I, one of the things I enjoy is reading biographies of influential people, of course, and uh, I always find out what it's helpful to me to see what God has done, and particularly in Christian biographies, somebody else's life, and I probably enjoy those because of my love for history, and I think it was many years ago, my, I put those two together, I came across the biography of a man by the name of Charles Finney, a great revivalist in the 19th century in America, right? Some have called him the father of modern revivals. And that gave me a, a real appreciation for what's called spiritual revival. If you're not familiar with that term, it's kind of a Christian term. Or, uh, the idea of revival or spiritual revival, it's a category of history that where God works in such a way, in such power, an outward display that people by scores and hundreds and thousands come to repentance, repent of their ways, their wickedness, and turn to God in massive ways. It's so evident and pervasive revival that in times of history, it has changed the course of not just churches, but entire cities, countries, and even continents is how powerful periods of revival are when God's working that way. And there have been numerous times in history with those kinds of revivals. Uh, for example, right here in Brazil, you may be not aware of it, you're living in the midst of one of those great periods of God's outpouring. I did some research on that and discovered, because when we came to Brazil, we were amazed at the, the work of God in this country over the last decades. 40, 50 years ago, there were, uh, as estimates, 5% of the population of Brazil were those that were Protestants, Christians, evangelicals, uh, mainline, or Pentecostals. Only 5% of the population. So 40 years later, it's estimated that now 22% of the population of Brazil, 190 million people, are now followers of Christ, Christians, mainline evangelicals or Protestants. That's been a, a huge outpouring. It's exploded of God's pouring into this country a sense of renewal and spiritual revival. You're living in the midst of one of those great periods of revival in this country. It's been a joy to see that. Other times in, in Western, the Western world, in England, in America, there have been those times of revival. What's known as the Welsh Revival in 1906. In that little country, it brought 100,000 believers into the churches of Wales, those Welsh churches. And eventually, that single revival spread over the, the ocean to America. It became what sparked what's known as the Azusa Street Revival in America. And that added 5 million new believers to the churches across America, England, and Wales. The outpouring of God's Spirit. And of course, one of the greatest revivals since the first century occurred about five, a little over 500 years ago, 1517, on October 31st, in fact, when Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the church door there at All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Germany. We, so we've had the opportunity to be there and to see that, that place that sparked there that what's called the Protestant Reformation. 
It's really an outpouring, a revival of God throughout Europe. It transformed all of Europe in those few years from moving them out of the dark ages and set the Christian church free in Europe from the abuses and the distortions of the Catholic church. All through the revival of the Bible's teaching of justification by faith apart from works. God changed the direction of a continent, much of our world today. Revival is one of the most intriguing and mysterious works of God in all of history. As a renowned pastor, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones of Westminster Chapel in London put it, he said, if there is one respect in which God confounds the wisdom of the wise more than any other, it is revival. I think that's true. And if you were with us last Sunday, as we've been moving this journey in this last month through the book of Jonah, you know that spiritual revival is in the Bible. We see a spiritual revival in the book of Jonah, in this great city of Nineveh, And it came about through the preaching of the prophet Jonah as he brought God's message through Jonah to Nineveh, challenged the people to turn from their wicked ways, their disobedience and disregard of the true God, to reject the pagan gods that they'd been worshiping, and to embrace and follow the God of the Hebrews, the God of the Bible, of the Jews. And they did that. And it brought a spiritual revival to that entire city, from the king all the way through the population. That city was changed. One of the great spiritual revivals in all of history. And the Bible says that when one person turns from their own way of life and turns and does life God's way, repents of their sin and disobedience and turns and places their faith in God and in Christ, that there's celebration in heaven. There's a joyous party that's given in heaven and even on earth over that one conversion. So just imagine what took place in heaven on that, t- that period of the revival in Nineveh. Heaven exploded. There was revival there and there was revival on the earth in the city of Nineveh, maybe like few have ever experienced. Everybody was celebrating and rejoicing over the revival that God had brought to that city. So we'd expect in that regard that the book of Jonah would conclude right there. Would say, wow, one last sentence. Show us the victory parade in Nineveh, Jonah celebrating and all the people there, and then just write it, the end. Enough said and done. Glory be to God for what he's done. But the book doesn't end there. There's another chapter. It was read to us this morning. After that great revival, the end couldn't be written yet. Because there's one more chapter that had to be written, not about Nineveh, not even about God, but about one person who refused to celebrate the revival of Nineveh. Okay, I'll give you one chance. Guess who that is? Jonah. Jonah, of all people. Jonah 
couldn't get on with the celebration of what happened there. This is how chapter 1 opens. But to Jonah, this great revival seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Can you get your, your head or your mind around that? Can you imagine that? Jonah, the one who led the, he preached the revival. He preached God's message. And then the people turn and listen to his message. And now Jonah is upset. He's angry with God over these results. What in the world could have possibly generated, caused a reaction like that from Jonah? Well, I'm glad you asked because I wonder the same thing. Verse 2 leads us on and tells us why he was so upset. And so he said to the Lord, isn't this what I said? Lord, when I was still at home, this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Uh, Essentially, Jonah says, God, the reason I'm so angry at you is because I knew if I preached that message of repentance, Jonah or the Nineveh would repent and you would have mercy on those wretched people who don't deserve that mercy. I knew that would happen. And so I didn't want to go there because they don't deserve it. (laughs) Jonah knew what God would do because he knew God, as evidenced here. And he didn't want Nineveh to get in on God's goodness, God's blessing that he enjoyed for himself because they didn't deserve it. Doesn't it strike you that there's something wrong with that picture? It just doesn't work. Isn't, isn't a prophet of God supposed to call people to follow God, to repent of their disobedience, and to turn to him in faith? Shouldn't a prophet then, when his message is heard and responded to, get in on the party, the rejoicing that's happening in heaven and happening among the people in the revival? Of course. Yet Jonah's attitude is totally different. I think it's epitomized in the poetic lines uh, a pastor friend of mine once wrote about Jonah, characterized him. said, we are God's chosen few, all others be damned. There is no place in heaven for you. We can't have heaven crammed. <laughs> I think that's the poem Jonah was reciting to himself. You see, all along, we thought Jonah's problem, as this story unfolded, was simply disobedience to God. Or maybe you add in a little bit of bigotry and maybe some disdain of, for, of foreigners, but Basically, he just didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. But now we see that the issue was much deeper than that. That wasn't the real issue at all. And so rather than God going point by point with Jonah and arguing with him about that rationally, 
showing him how wrong he was and helping him deal with his theological racism, God took a different approach. He prepared a little illustration, a little object lesson to help Jonah realize what the real issue was in his heart. And so as Jonah left the city, that we see, and he turned back and he waited for God to change his mind and blast this city with judgment, God got to work with this little object lesson for Jonah. We see that in verse 6. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant, like a vine of some type. And he made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort from the sun, the hot sun there. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun came up and rose, God provided a scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint, and he wanted to die. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. And so this object lesson God has, is preparing. You've got a vine some shade, a worm, and a wind. <laughs> what do you do with those four elements? They were going to be part of the object lesson that God had in store for Jonah. And through those elements, he would reveal Jonah's deeper issue. It was far deeper than simply disobedience. So you're probably confused. What, are those, what do you do with those? Let's dissect them a little bit and put them together. The plant, the vine, that represents God's mercy. Uh, and the shade from that plant up to the sun demonstrates how welcome and refreshing is God's mercy. As Jonah sat under it and enjoyed the shade. He enjoyed that and he liked being the beneficiary of God's mercy and God's grace. And so God let him sit there for a while. And enjoy that. The object lesson, though, is found as the story continues. Uh, you see, it's found in the fact that Jonah enjoyed those um, evidences of God's mercy and grace. He, that he experienced in the vine and the shade. A vine that God reminds him, you didn't plant this. You had no part in tending it and helping it grow. But you enjoy its benefits, don't you? And yet then God brings the third element into this story, a worm. It chews at the plant, and the plant's withered because of the worm's attack. Overnight, it's gone. And Jonah wakes up the next day, and he has to sit under this scorching sun now because the vine is gone. And he gets angry with God, so angry, he says, I want to die. I'm burning to death here. And he's, he's scornful of God. God, how could you mistreat me? How could you take that beautiful, wonderful, shade-producing vine away? And withhold, in a sense, how could you withhold your mercy from me? After all I've done for you. Are you seeing the point God's making? The point is, it's actually the point of the entire book of Jonah. 
Which is why I'm glad there's a fourth chapter. Otherwise, we would have been short-circuited here. You see, on the one hand, Jonah loved and enjoyed the mercy of God when it was for him, when he was the recipient of it. It was wonderful. And his remembrance of God's word to Moses, he even recites them in Exodus 34. He says, God, I, I love the fact that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abundant in mercy. That brought Jonah much comfort to himself. But when God offered that same kindness to Nineveh, Jonah wasn't ready for that. He got angry, jealous that God would would waste his mercy on such undeserving pagan people. If Jonah could sing a song about that, I think it would be the song that we, I, I love. We don't sing it here, but maybe some of you know it. It's a song called Reckless Love. Jonah would sing the song about reckless mercy. He says, God, you've wasted your mercy. And God's mercy and love, of course, are intertwined, so you can't separate them. So he'd say, God, it's reckless love. How can you give your mercy to people like this and waste it? It looks so reckless. Huh. And then God wants to reverse things. So Jonah really gets the message. And that is reversed when God withholds his mercy from Jonah. He got angry then because God's mercy was withheld from him when the vine withered. But he had no remorse. Get it? He had no remorse if God's mercy was withheld from Nineveh. That didn't bother him in the least. He said, good. Just what they deserve. So God wants Jonah to recognize this, that he can't have it both ways. He can't enjoy God's mercy for himself while he withholds it from others. Can't do it. Doesn't work that way. And so God confronts Jonah about his hypocritical and his hard heart. And we see that in verse 10. Actually, it starts with a question in 9. He says, is it right for you to be angry about the plant, Jonah? In verse 10, he says, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight, and it died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? And with that probing question, the story ends. The end. And we're left with no reply from this impertinent, impolite prophet. The question just hangs in the air. And the reason is because the impact that God leaves with Jonah and with Israel, because we've discovered this is really a message to Israel as well, is, listen, I want you, Jonah, Israel, I want you to take a long, hard look in the mirror tomorrow, tonight. How could you enjoy my mercy while withholding it from others? 
Think about that, Jonah, as God goes silent. Since they were the recipients of God's mercy and blessing, Jonah and Israel, God's point is you must also be instruments of that mercy to others. Even those who are, in your estimation, fully undeserving. <laughs> and so it is for us who are likewise recipients of God's mercy and his grace through Jesus Christ. It's a message to us, not just to Jonah and Israel. He says, listen, take a look in the mirror and ask yourself, are we enjoying God's mercy and grace while withholding it from others? For that is the, really the lesson of Jonah. It boils down to that. The lesson is that we who have received his mercy must be instruments of his mercy to others. Now, if we were to get really honest in church, which is a safe place to do that, you and I would probably say, we have a list like Jonah's. At least we've, maybe some of us have had a list. I've had a list like that. A list on, on people on my list or someone that, honestly, I just as soon they didn't get too close to the mercy of God. They're just so undeserving. Maybe in your list, it's a business associate that once, at one time you did business with and then he cheated you. Maybe it caused you to lose your business, destroyed your reputation, your profession, did great economic harm to you. Maybe it's a church that one time you were a part of and it, it wounded you, it damaged you, bruised you, left you battered and, bro and broken at the side of the road and just ran over you with the church bus, went right on down the road. Perhaps it was a spouse who cheated on you, mistreated you, abused you, and left you. Or maybe it was a parent that did that, abandoned you and hurt you and abused you, and, and never acknowledged it. Perhaps a friend who betrayed you and lied about you, did great harm to you, and left you battered and, and broken. Whatever the details are, some of us have someone in our lives who is like Nineveh to us. Nineveh was to Jonah, but we have people in our lives that are like that sometimes, don't we? And in our honest moments that we'd rather not acknowledge, I, I understand that, we'd really rather they not experience the grace and the mercy of God. Well, that can happen. And we definitely don't want God to ask us to be instruments to bring the, his mercy to them if he does, in fact. Just like Jonah. God, you can do that, but don't ask me to be a part of that. But the message of Jonah is that that's exactly what God wants for us. That we who have received his mercy must be instruments of his mercy to others. And so we, we must pray that God will show us the hypocrisy of our hearts, the hardness of our hearts, if we withheld mercy from others. We must ask him to help us see the lostness of people all around us 
Maybe the people he's brought next to us or brought into our lives in some way, even some painful ways. And then allow him to make our hearts tender toward them, to bring his mercy to them, so that we begin to pray for them and ask God to touch their lives with his mercy and his goodness, his good news. And we maybe even become instruments of bringing that good news of Jesus, his forgiveness and healing to their lives. I get it, I know. Those are hard issues, aren't they? But we must face them. As Jonah had to face his and respond to saying, God, I want to understand your mercy. And I want to be an instrument of your mercy. But it doesn't just end there with us looking in the mirror. This isn't just a personal lesson to Jonah and to you and to me. We've, we've discovered it's also a message for the nation, the nation of Israel, God's people. He wanted them to look in the mirror because Israel had done the same thing. And he wants it to be a message for the church today as well. You see, because at this time in history, Israel was doing pretty well. Uh, now, they had become calloused uh, toward other nations. They were calloused toward the spiritual needs of peoples and nations around them, but they were enjoying God's grace and His, mer His mercy for them. But they'd forgotten something very important. They'd forgotten that centuries ago, God had announced His plan to their father Abraham. And he told Abraham in the book of Genesis, way back, Genesis 12, he said, when he called Abraham to be the father of the nation, he said, you will be a blessing, meaning you and your people, the Jews, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples, even the Ninevites. And that same commission was passed on to us in the church by Jesus himself. For remember what he said? He told us, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. You see church, as a church, we too need to look into the mirror and ask ourselves, are we enjoying the mercy and the grace of God while withholding it? from those around us? See, are we as passionate about making new disciples as we are about developing current disciples? Do we have as much focus on our ministry engagements outside the church as we do on the ministry involvements and activities inside the church? Are we as welcoming to those who don't yet belong or believe like we do, as we are to those who belong here and believe just like we do? Are, are we as excited about spending some of our vacation time doing missions as we are about sending our money to missions? Those are hard questions that we need to ask when we look in the mirror and answer them as a church. Because you see, the biggest obstacle to the Ninevites receiving God's mercy, receiving salvation, wasn't their own sin, surprisingly enough. God was quite ready to give them his mercy and to forgive them. 
the obstacle for them was Jonah's sin. His reluctance to preach to them and to tell them about the mercy and forgiveness of God, to include them in the good things of God's compassion and mercy. And God wants us to ask, could the same be true of us in our lives and in our church? You see, that's why we don't want to be like Jonah. We want to be like Jesus. Oftentimes, a Bible book ends and you say, that's what I want to be like. Not Jonah. He's not our model. For Jonah ran. He ran from the lost. Jesus went to the lost. Jonah was filled with resentment toward the lost. Jesus had compassion on the lost. Jonah condemned God for his grace. Jesus embodied God's grace. And Jonah kept the truth for himself. And Jesus is the truth that sets people free from their sin. Yeah, we believe that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So did Jonah. But then he wanted to keep it to himself. Didn't want others to get in on the good, good times. As followers of Jesus, as the church of Jesus Christ, we are commissioned to take it to others, to the ends of the earth. It's not about us alone. It's about them as well who haven't yet experienced and enjoyed the shade of God's mercy. And that's good news for you today. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, and maybe you thought, yeah, I'm not deserving of God's mercy. I'm too far gone. I've messed my life up too much. I have too much baggage. I'm way over the baggage limit. God just would never want to come to me. The message of Jonah to you is, yes, he would. If we'll bring that message to you, God says, I want you to hear about my grace, my love, my mercy, my forgiveness. I know you've done life your way, and wherever it's gotten you, isn't where you hope to be. But by God's mercy and his grace, when you turn your life over to him and say, Jesus, I want to know you. I need to know you. I confess my sins and I repent of that sin. And I turn to you in simple faith. Will you come into my life and forgive me of my sins, take control of my life from this day forward, and give me the gift of eternal life? God says, yes, I will. Because you're never too far gone to be out of the reach of, of God's mercy that releases you from judgment, that pays the penalty that you owe for your sins, and it lets you experience the forgiveness of God through his grace in Jesus Christ. If we can help you take that step and discover that truth and that reality that God's mercy can change your life, we would love to sit down and talk to you and walk you to with, the next, with you with, to that next step so you can discover how that can be true in your life as well. Let's pray together as we close. God, thank you for this remarkable book. It surprises us with its message. It brings us up short to look in the mirror, but we need to do that. 
God, thanks for your mercy that's changed our lives, that's reached down to us and made us followers of Jesus, given us uh, the life we always hoped for but could never find, discover. Lord, we pray that that same mercy, we might be instruments of it. We might have a burning passion as people, individuals, families, and as a church to live that out and to proclaim that through this great city of Sao Paulo and even beyond. God, might we be a part of that great revival that you desire to bring to people's lives. Even those some who are here today who always thought they would, would never be worthy of your mercy. But they are because of your great love. And because they need Jesus, I pray, Lord, that you'd show them the pathway to discover who he is. In your name we pray, amen.